10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one second, please. Please, Mr. Sarah I don't want to. Please don't shoot me into Honor's game. Please, Mr. Sarah Welcome back to Mages Murder Dads. This is episode 64. Today we are talking about our impressions of famous political figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, we're missing the debate tonight to record this. Oh, is that true? Yeah. And I don't know if you heard the new formatting rules, but now um, Jill Stein, uh, of course, as we all know, will be um, mm-hmm. encased in plexiglass six feet yep. off the off the ground. Uh, and her uh, challenger, the libertarian candidate, will be sitting in like one of those carnival um, dunk tanks. Mm-hmm. And uh, in lieu of questions, Jill Stein will get uh, 74 softballs. Now, uh, I heard that um, Stein, you know, this is part of the, the you know, disagreement that the parties, of course, always have, mm-hmm. uh, the minor disagreements about the setup for these things. But I heard that... Um, Stein would be in the plexiglass container and there would be a fan uh, with money, you know, <laughs> kind of flying around and uh, there would be a score associated with how much of that she could grab in her hands. Is that, uh, are they going ahead with that? I didn't, I didn't. Uh, They've made it hybrid. The score will be uh, kind of like an average of mm-hmm. oh, the, the total value of, mm-hmm. of the, of the little money, which yeah. I don't even think it's, it's like real money that they're, they're kind oh. of like, Mm-hmm. It's kind of monopoly money. Yeah, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. They thought it was a little too gross uh, during these trying times to uh, have actual money be in the be in the tank. I mean, but you know, that's something you can say about the Stein presidency. Um, like the presidency always is, they're deeply respectful of the American people. Yeah, agreed. Well, but uh, that's actually not what this podcast is about. This no. podcast is about the Baldur's Gate games, and uh, we're talking about our impressions of. Baldur's Gate 3, which, uh, you know, we recorded a couple episodes basically over this past summer. We've, you know, taken a long break from doing full games here to kind of wait for Baldur's Gate 3 and maybe Disco Elysium. We'll talk about that probably at the end of this episode. But um, it's out. The game exists. Uh, and It's been out for, what, three weeks or so, something yeah. like that? A little more than three weeks. And you could almost say that this is our first impressions, but the term first impressions tends to connote like a certain level of like a cursory, you know, glance. But I think yeah. combined, we've probably put 70 hours into this thing. Yeah. How Plus. many hours do you have? Do you have it? Oh, I've got set. Actually, I've got 70. I know you've got like 25. Yeah, I've got something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, weirdly enough, it didn't count all of my time, uh, like in Steam. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I've got uh, 20 some odd hours in the thing um, and uh, played through the whole thing. I've written um, a long piece for Polygon. I wrote the Polygon review of it, of the whole vibe of the thing and, and what it's doing and how it's doing it. And um, and uh, yeah. And you've just played the whole entire early access portion of this game. It's an early access. This is the first act of the game. You've played it through 
two times. Two complete times. I'm on my, uh, well, I, I did a third, like a half mm-hmm. to do a proof of concept, mm-hmm. um, which the proof of concept was a successful one. And now I've started a fourth to, to make some different decisions. <sighs> wow. Yeah, you are not going to want to play this game when we. Here's the thing, and this is I'm going to we'll start this with a confession. Okay. Um, you've never played one of these games. You've been faking it the whole time. <laughs> the footage I just sent as like a very obscure YouTuber that's been uh, <laughs> that's been like working through land, and I had to just uh, like the whole Balthazar's turn to a solo character was just purely because of the footage that person decided to do. <laughs> No, I'll I'll make a confession that um I have been since Baldur's Gate 3 got announced and some of the the first footage started coming out and, and they started pushing it harder. Mm-hmm. I've been saying, "Oh yeah, that that looks good. That looks fun." Um but there was a part of me that was deeply afraid. Um deeply wary of the fact that it was turn-based. And mm-hmm. as you know, the last game we played on this show I had such a bad time that it like turned me off of video games period for a year. Yeah. I did not play a video game after Torment colon Tides of Numenera for a solid calendar year. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that that game was also turn based. So <laughs> when when I yep. saw this, when I saw this, I was like, oh, my God. This Sometimes be. out of the corner of your eye, you would see Dragon Quest. And you would say, not today, Satan. No. I'm not, I'm not, not doing that. Final mm. Fantasy Tactics, get out of here. Yeah. All turn-based systems were bad. Um, so going into this, I uh, I was I was kind of like, I'm going to give this you know an honest shot. I will have to say, I am pleasantly surprised that it is the case that after playing this, I am excited to play this when it comes out. I I am mm-hmm. like excited. I will be excited to like experience this when it comes out. Is that the case with you? Are you more or less excited to play this when it comes out than before you ever played it? I this game has to do it has to go a lot of places before I think I will be completely happy with it. Mm-hmm. And um, this is something that that I say in my uh, Polygon article. This is something that I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in more granularity as we go. But as a general, like you were saying, kind of big picture statement. Um, I really think that 5th edition D&D, and this is something that people have heard me say a thousand times across a number of different things that we've recorded, but I think that 5th edition D&D by the book is clunky. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that uh, it can be real slow. Um, I think that there are some assumptions in in the DNA of D&D that maybe don't make for the best potential, um, you know, role-playing experience. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. this game is a gamified version of 5th edition D&D, and so I feel like the worst parts of it, right, the places where it needs to be smoothed out for me are places where it is being a little too faithful to some tabletop rules that, for the most part, I think many people kind of allied in their actual play anyway. Yeah. So that's where it is. I mean, I, I think it is, you know, there, there are some bumps in the road here, but I like... As far as if you're, you know, if we rephrase the question slightly, is this a good role-playing game? Yeah, I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's fun. I enjoyed my time with it. Um, it would probably have been better if I hadn't had to play it so quickly. Um, I probably would have had a little bit more patience for for some of the stuff. Um, but overall, yeah, I think it's a cool game. I'm, I'm not mad about it. I'm not... Um, 
I think they can take their time, you know? You uninstalled it, too, after you put in this review. <laughs> I, I did uninstall it, too, but because, yeah, I'm not going to... I don't want to burn out on the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I didn't uninstall it because, like, screw this thing, right? But um, I, I, I don't want to burn out on it, so I don't really want to play it anymore other than what I played for the review. Um, you know, I'm happy to talk about it or whatever, but I'm willing to wait until the next piece comes out, then then I'll play it again, or I'll wait till the full game is out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 you know, I think that uh, playing it regularly through the whole open ac- or uh, early access process can have one of two effects. It can either make you love the thing and be very forgiving of some of the rough patches because you've seen it in an even rougher state, mm-hmm. or it can make you sick of the thing. Yeah, uh, and I think but I think both would be bad for my enjoyment of the video game. Yeah, <laughs> um, and talking about it. So yeah, and, and also it's like an eighty gigabyte install. I have like other shit I need to do with <laughs> this true. computer. It's true. <laughs> no, I would say the only uh, I, I've I've replayed it a couple times for a few reasons, and we're gonna address some questions. Uh, we're gonna try to answer some questions that we uh, we solicited from our Discord that I think uh, are gonna cover like a nice a nice uh, cross-section of, of kind of the, the aspects of this game, the way that you can examine it. I'm excited to do that. But kind of, you know, uh, stealing one question's thunder a little bit. I did try uh, to play this game solo, Balthazar style, because I do think it would be fun to try to replicate that for this mm-hmm. game uh, in the same way that I did the other Baldur's Gate games. Um, it is a very different game to do that versus doing it with a party. So that explains some of the repetition on my part. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm actually uh, with you. I think that uh, once I kind of do the little experiment that I want to do um, with the game, the next one, I, I'm probably going to drop it until it'd have to be a pretty major patch for me to for me to pick it up again. They need to add some real like extra classes or something like that. Yeah. Um yeah, and that was something too that you know you and I were talking uh, pretty regularly over Discord when when we were playing it, and we even like screen shared one night to, to play through part of it and to talk about the game. And that was something that we we kind of figured out pretty quickly is that yeah, a solo experience of the game is very diff- different, um, mm-hmm. and it seems like AI is a little bit more exploitable when you're doing a solo game. Um, it seems obviously a lot of narrative things are very different because mm-hmm. your party members can impact narrative in the game. Um, and, and you had a, I mean, do you want to talk about your glitch that you experienced? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and kind of ask the question. So we'll, we'll get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, James asked this question in the discord. How much, uh, does the game right now feel built slash accommodating for the Balthazar emoji style, mm-hmm. no companion play. Are you losing a lot by doing that? And do you think that that is going to change as it is updated? So the very first thing I did with this game is an att- attempt to kind of recreate Balthazar, uh, my, my previous character. And uh, unfortunately, there's no half-orc and there's no barbarian. The closest thing statistically to what I think that they're going to do with a half-orc is a dwarf right now with strength and constitution bonuses. So I made a dwarf fighter, right? I have no idea how this bug <laughs> manifested. It seems it seems very bizarre. And, and, I, and, and I reported the bug to the forums, which, by the way, really difficult to report these bugs. 
you're, you're either posting on like the Steam forums or you have to like register for Larian specific forums right. and then make a post there. Excellent. There should be a button with like a field. I have no idea why it's not that way. But uh, I was invulnerable to any ranged attack that targeted AC. At first, I thought it was just bows and arrows, but it extends to other ranged attacks that target AC. Vicious Mockery doesn't ta- target AC. So Vicious Mockery hits. That's against Wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, fireball doesn't target AC. That's like a deck saving throw. Mm-hmm. But certain spells do target AC. Invulnerable. There's not even a miss-like dialogue that pops up. There's no hit. It just an animation happens. So my first character, I played the entire game with this kind of special ability, the superpower, um, mostly because I just wanted like, just wanted to kind of like really experience a lot of the game kind of on an easy mode, as it were. Um, and yeah, that is that it would have definitely, especially when some encounters are just me basically soloing things one at a time as everyone else like flails at me with useless attacks that I'm invulnerable to. That was the first thing. But to more address the question, there there is one strike against this game when it comes to building a solo type of play, you know, player character and one and a couple of smaller strikes for it. The biggest strike against it um is the fact that experience is not split in this game. When an enemy is defeated or a quest is completed, a um you get that amount of experience so like maybe 25 experience is what like an enemy is worth and if you have a party of four each one of the party members get 25 experience if you only have one character you only get 25 experience um which means you don't get the balthazar effect of being four times the level right uh you know having four times accumulating four times the amount of experience when you don't have party members Mm -hmm. that's pretty bad right because that's one of the ways that balthazar was able to work uh throughout one of the those games and it's one of the reasons why balthazar was not able to finish throne of ball right um because those those last two encounters were were just like too mechanically out of out of place because he was at the level cap and had been for three games yeah um now the things for and we may talk about this a little bit with some of the other questions, is there is enough... And I'll say one other thing against. Due to the fact that it's turn-based, you have the action economy really against you. In Baldur's Gate, everything you can do real-time, you can move around in real-time while other characters are moving. You can eliminate, cast high-risk high uh, you know, glass cannon opponents, and you can do that while other people are closing in on you, etc., um, so the fact that now there's an action economy and when you're in a fight with 10 opponents, they're going to get 10 standard actions to your one. That's pretty bad. That's real bad. The things on the pro side is this combat engine is so much more full featured and exploitable with physics, with all of these environmental effects, with line of sight, um, there are, there's like this relatively robust suite of magical items that, uh, anybody can use. Scrolls appear, at least in this version, and I, I'm going to imagine it's going to stay this way. All scrolls can be used by all character classes, which means you can have a barbarian, like, you know, cast a magic missile from a scroll. 
Mm-hmm. Great. It just this this engine gives you a ton of tools to be able to like come at things weird ways. And I have done a proof since I played the first playthrough where I took a solo character and I like defeated like the three big goblin bosses that are kind of like make up the meat of this game solo. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of time, but in a lot of ways, that's what I was already doing in Baldur's Gate 1 and, one and 2, which was like pushing that system to its extreme edges and finding out where the edges were and then just coming at it from that angle. So I think that that's a pretty pretty yeah. comprehensive answer. Well, on top of that too, right, j- just to say one additional thing about action economy, right, I didn't play this as a solo character, but the, you know, you get free action, um, uh, uh, whatever, um, quick action, that's not what it's called. Minor anymore. action. Minor actions. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then standard action, right? There's a huge amount of throwable items in yeah. in this game, and so you can almost always use your minor action to do something that impacts either the shape of the battlefield, or to do extra damage, or to just huck something at someone and hit them. Um, and I think that actually has a pretty big impact for solo character play, that that if you are uh, funneling all of the items that you can collect in the game into one character, you have a pretty big Swiss Army knife of tools to use every round. Yeah. Which is and not really the case when you have a full party because you are using items at four times the rate, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt, you know, when we were talking about the game as we were playing it, I felt I was often constrained in my actions a lot more than you were because I had been using everything in my repertoire every single combat and which would go over you know um you know five or six turns with four characters each that's 20 different actions and so you know i burned through a lot of my utility stuff a lot quicker Mm -hmm. no i think that this is uh there's some more interesting stuff what tell you what i've got a big doc full of the questions feel free Mm -hmm. to pick one i picked the Um, first one well, let's just let's just hit some of these. Uh, let's hit these big picture ones in order. How about that? They, they, that I, seems good because I think they're all good. So these are all from the Discord. Like we said, we we told people on the Range Touch Discord, "Hey, you got any questions about this? We'll answer them." And and I I think we initially thought, "Well, we'll do this at the end, and we'll just answer some of these questions." But people ask so many questions, and they're uh, big enough in scope that we can just kind of talk about the game with them. So yeah. Uh, this is uh, from Arisafail Arisafailies. I don't know. Uh, does uh, Baldur's Gate 3 feel like an evolution or a retread of the previous games or something else entirely? Mm. Mm. What do you think? Evolution's a real uh, packed word there. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the the previous games felt much like uh, some sort of pre-crab shape mm-hmm. and Baldur's Gate 3 is 100% post-crab. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, you you really put it quite succinctly, as succinctly as I think you could have in what is what is a pretty meaty polygon piece, that review, where ultimately what this game is, is it is a Larian game with the BG intellectual property that is an implementation of 5th edition rules in a video game. Basically, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, um, you know, it it is, you feel like the pitch was, hey, we'll turn 5th edition D&D, the most popular tabletop game in the world, we will turn that into a video game for you, and then we'll do our Larian stuff on top. 
oh, what is that? That's the uh, the thing for that? Oh, Baldur's Gate? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Um, uh, it, Baldur's Gate, you know, in the hierarchy of, like, things of importance, Baldur's Gatiness, whatever that is, doesn't feel like it was number one. Mm-hmm. It does. I, I actually, before we recorded this, I watched a couple video reviews of Divinity Original Sin 2. I haven't played mm-hmm. Original Sin 2, but I did play the Original Sin original. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, you can definitely tell that it's like the same type of engine. Baldur's Gate is a prettier implementation, a uh, lot funner stuff with the camera. It, it, it's a it's a more attractive game, I would say. Um, but uh, it looks like a Larian implementation of, and this is like this is as fifth edition as I think a video game can get to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then with a and and it's in Faerun basically now. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a part of this question we can't necessarily answer, which is how much is this story going to interlink with the tale, like the the, the story of the ball spawn, and mm-hmm. and that is a that is open ended based on what I based on the narrative I have seen. It very well could be that this is a completely independent story that may reference the ball spawn, or it could be ball is in the mix. It is it, it it to me is not answered. Well, you found a reference to Ball, right? While you were playing, I did. It's it's a little comedic. Um, there is a there is a uh, mischievous character that is posing as Ball in a in a kind of more or less hidden area. Mm, so mm-hmm. How about that? That's for for you Easter egg people. But yeah, I mean, I think, I you know, I guess to their benefit though, think about this. Baldur's Gate One's not really a Baldur's Gate story until chapter two. That's true. You know, you know, up until basically the mines, right? It's like anything could be happening. They were like, "Oh shit, there's a conspiracy." So, um, and I think in this game we're getting to Baldur's Gate in Act Three. If this if this early yeah. access is Act One, there's going to be an Act Two, which is getting to kind of the the next big place. Mm, it's like the Towers. road to Baldur's Gate is kind of what it looks like. We get a yeah. little bit of a preview in in this one, mm-hmm. and then I think the third one we we end up in Baldur's Gate, and there's several characters that we meet that uh, that say, "Oh yeah, our our end destination is Baldur's Gate. You should see me when when we get there." So yep. eventually, uh, that will happen. But I th- yeah, I think that that's the best answer we can give. It is this kind of you have a big cauldron of stuff and you, you toss in those elements and this is what that is. Yeah. But there's very little of what I would consider. Um, I don't know. I, there's just, there's not a lot of like wandering around and then there's just like some Gygaxian shit going on. Everything feels like it's there for a purpose. Um, mm. you know, it feels very designed to me as far as the encounters. That's interesting. Uh, I think that should should I should I pipe in with a question that's directly about this? Sure, sure. Um, yeah. So, do 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 do. Where is this? Mm-hmm. There's definitely a question here. I'm going to Control F Gygaxian. There mm-hmm. we go. As you do. Yeah, Sergio asks. Does combat feel Gygaxian or deliberately designed as combat? And mm. here's the thing. I think my answer is Gygaxian on this one. 
I, I agree. I So, yeah, I mean, I think I would make a distinction between... I think the combat feels very dynamic and Gygaxian and weird. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like real stuff. I just mean... The world not, design. Exactly. Right? Uh-huh. There's not like, you know, um, uh, I don't know, a uh, a troll hanging out who, uh, you know, just wandered in from somewhere and he's just, you know, chilling. And if you make him mad, he's going to fight you. Uh, every every character and entity has like a little bit of a backstory behind it. It's got a little bit of a connection to some other entity in the world. Um, and I get that, right? Uh, it This feels in structure to me as if someone played the Sunless Citadel <laughs> like mm-hmm. campaign or, you know, uh, module. And they were like, this is what a good D&D area feels like. It's got a little bit of ecology to it. It's got a little bit of like um the uh these connections however in like the gygaxian mode it would have ecology and the ecology would do the work there there would be no narrative necessarily that ties Mm -hmm. everything together um but uh, here it's like anyone you can talk to would be like yes it's the zentrum over there and i know all about them yeah (laughs) no i think that this is a really important distinction because let's take our otyug example right Mm mm-hmm in uh, a Baldur's Gate 1 dungeon is Gygaxian because at the bottom of the dungeon, there's just going to be an Otyug because you got to put your garbage somewhere. Mm-hmm. The difference between th- that manifestation of Gygaxian versus what the equivalent in Baldur's Gate 3 would be is there would be like dialogue from a goblin on level two talking about oh there's a there's not yug on the, on the bottom yes, level and if 100%. you do and, and, and uh, we made a deal with him yes and yes. but don't steal his treasure hidden in his pit it would you know what i mean it would be this like weird quest hooky kind of thing which yeah. isn't necessarily bad but doesn't no. feel very natural no there is basically the it's too like the undergirding is like this sense of gygaxianism but the the Baldur's Gate 3 is going to have it a little bit more curated, a li- you know, mm-hmm. a little bit. There's going to be a little bit more uh, dazzle and, and a ribbon on top of it to kind of draw you in that direction. Um, there is a there is an old woman in a in a shack in Baldur's Gate 3. You talk about her in the review. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that she is a hag. I think that in Baldur's Gate 1, there would be no, uh, like, signposting there, and she would just live there. Yeah. And you would have to just do something uh, or complete some sort of weird thing in the world. Um, or just attack her, and you would find out she was there. Yeah, I think that I think in Baldur's Gate 1, there would be no, because in this game, of course, you can, like, come to her with your problem, and she's going to yeah. have dialogue trying to address your problem. I think in Baldur's Gate 1, it's just like a mysterious old woman. There's no indication whatsoever she's a hag until you attack her, and then she turns into one. I think that's, yep. uh, yeah. There's but, a um, demon hiding in the shack. But no, when it comes to, uh, I do think that the combat itself feels very Gygaxian, and, the, and I would say encounters in terms of not necessarily the narrative setup of the encounters, but like as they happen, feel very Gygaxian to me. Mm-hmm. There are several bad things, evil things you can do where you decide to betray a large settlement um, on two separate occasions in this in this early access. And if you do that, you you show up with like a uh, a bad army and you raid the settlement and all of the NPCs in that in that settlement are like enemies. Now, half of them are civilians and they're just they have a permanent frightened condition and they're running away while you slaughter them. 
it takes hours because it's turn-based. Of course. That is the height of Gygax, of like Gygaxian encounter design. Like the, the Siege of Dragonspear version of this is it, that just happens in the background while you have one like uh, keystone fight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah uh, I don't know if that, uh, hopefully that answers the question. Um, <laughs> it does feel dynamic in the sense of... Um, Every combat encounter, basically, you know, they've obviously designed these combat encounters in, in the sense they've chosen the enemies. But as someone who had to reload a lot of combat <laughs> encounters, they do play out differently every time. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you can kind of clown the AI and do all kinds of stuff. You know, when you and I were playing, I spent a lot of time kicking people off of things, yeah. and pushing them. And that's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, you know, I had I had a couple combat encounters that really took me like a couple hours each. And. I ended up coming up with three or four strategies of like how I might approach them and all of those kind of worked or, or, you know, as I was searching for the appropriate ones. So yeah, they, they, they feel good. Very, I, none of them felt like, Oh, there's an objectively correct answer to how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, which, which I think would be an anti gigaxian kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, well, uh, this is from slasher epic in the, uh, in the thing. Um, are there any influences in Baldur's Gate 2 besides D&D, Baldur's Gate 1 and 2? And I, I would say Original Sin, probably. Yeah. Original Sin 2. I think that... Uh, and Original Sin probably owes a certain amount of... I don't know. I, I think that Dragon Age probably influenced mm -hmm. Original Sin quite a bit. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, and I, I swear there's like a character in this game. I think Shadowheart is very Morgan. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, I, I think, yeah, we're going to talk about these NPCs, but I think, um, it's, we'll talk about it when we get there. Yeah. That. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that, um, we, we've got all of the lore of, uh, kind of fifth edition Faerun Forgotten Realms D&D &D in here. We have uh, the, the, those kind of video game traditions, but the most immediate one is, yeah, Original Sin. There's just going to be, I think Cameron, first one of his first impressions was, yeah, this, this, is, this is Original Sin 3 or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this is from Symmetry in the Discord. Do you think that the way Baldur's Gate 3 places an importance on dice rolls that go on within dialogue and, and combat pays off in any meaningful way? In light of Disco Elysium last year, where failure felt meaningful, my experience of the early access has been that failure is rarely interesting, and seeing the dice roll unfavorably ends up making it feel like I should just reload my last save. Um, I agree with this. Yeah. Uh, I do not think that failure... I think that this is a almost tone-perfect implementation of D&D 5th Edition because D&D 5th Edition rules as written also does not really have any meaningful failure built into it. Um, uh, I think good DMs put that in, you know, I've seen, um, you know, just, to, you know, kind of talk about fifth edition. I've seen Chris Perkins do some of the most talented kind of fail forward kind of stuff in D and D fifth edition, in However, spite of the system, in spite of the system, using things that are not really in the system, uh, in order to do that, um, riffing off of it, I guess. Right. But yeah, I mean, if you read the books as written, uh, there's not a lot of instruction as a DM uh, about how to have someone fail a check and then go about something in a different way. Um, basically, the way that all the um, different adventure books handle this is it's like, here are four or five different pathways. If they fail on one of them, they can use some strategies to find another one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is for the most part what's going on here in Baldur's Gate three. It's you know if you fail a uh, uh, perception check, well, good luck, buddy. I guess you can fight some goblins. Oh, I mean, here's the here's the most extreme version of this in the game. And this is especially brutal as a solo character, which I, I, I'm, I might just have to have sorcerers.net up on the second monitor and make sure just to like know where the perception checks are coming up so I can save right before it. Because uh, wait, mm-hmm. hold on, does sorcerers.net have have Baldur's Gate three stuff on it yet? Well, they will by the time we play. Maybe they I will be the contributor. To. I'm going to be so yeah. We might have to do it ourselves. I'm going to be so sad if we can't if we can't go to uh, official sponsor sorcerers.net and and get all of our uh, you know extra information. But anyway, I'm sorry. So no. Uh, so yeah, shows. the the most extreme things is you go to the end of a hallway. You know, and it's almost worse because as a player, you know there's a secret door there because the way these maps and the camera works is you can literally like move the camera through the secret door and you could see the stuff on the other side. Um, you see the little perception check come up. It says failure. You're done. You're locked out of that. Uh, you either have to reload and do the check again or you are permanently locked out of whatever content is behind that door. And... In the first 15 to 45 minutes of the game, let's say, you can get a camp follower that has a really interesting, (laughs) cool ability and interesting lore with it. Utterly, you will miss this character if you do not make a single perception check. It is is a dice roll that determines whether you get to consume content or not. It's bad. It's, it's uh, yeah, that was great. Because I think you and I were screen sharing, right? Yeah. When, when that happened, I was like, oh, cool. There's like a skeleton guy in here. And you were like, what? There's <laughs> <laughs> a skeleton guy. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, no, I, and, and yeah, I, well, I guess the, the important thing here is that how would you have known that? You know, uh, you just will not experience that. Um, and I don't get a sense that if you level up, you get a shot at it again, right? So Disco Elysium, if you fail a check, you can mm-hmm. at least go out and then level up, put more points into that ability, and then come back and get another shot at it. Which is, um, this is actually more punitive than Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, because in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, you just, like, even with the lowest of the low wisdom modifier, you could just sit in a place and, like, rest, and eventually you will spot a trap. You yeah. know, uh, I don't think that there are other. Yeah, it's just it, it is a design ethic. I think that the most favorable interpretation I could give to this kind of design ethic is if you get locked out, you are you are offered an equally interesting alternative. But there are just so many circumstances in this game where it is it does not work that way. It It is you just don't get to see content reload or wait till the next playthrough mm-hmm. yeah yeah um yeah it's not whatever that is it's not working right now and i think it has to do with um again absorbing some of the assumptions underneath D without interrogating why those if those assumptions are good or not basically mm-hmm. um and yeah you're right i the, the cool thing about Baldur's gate one and two right is if you know there's a secret door somewhere you can just wander around in a little area over and over again until yeah. eventually it'll uncover which is kind of like real life, right? If I know that <laughs> yeah. there's a secret passageway, as I'm always finding in my life, <laughs> uh, if I know there's a secret passageway, I can just walk around and kind of feel around and try to find it and, and do it. 
uh, until I find it. And you can do the same thing in D&D traditionally, right? This is the kind of classic notion of taking 10. Right? Or taking 20 if you've yeah. got hours. Yeah, exactly. So and the idea behind that is, you know, what? Uh, how many hours would you have to put in in order to equal, you know, getting getting success at something that you want, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're making potions or whatever. And, and D- previous versions of D&D implemented that in a mechanical way. Uh, whereas I don't think that system is represented in fifth edition anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Sergio asks, when Danny tweeted out, this feels very Baldur's Gate, what kind of moments was he referring to? You touch on this in the piece you wrote, but there are several quests that are just so emblematic of this like someone is lying to you i think is the way that uh yes. that you put it and when we were recording mages and murdered ads for bg's uh one siege of dragon spear and two we would often put it as oh no the person you thought was bad was actually good or vice versa right yep. um that those kind of a designs like I, I i just i hit a story beat and i said wow that that is some Baldur's gate and also just uh there were a couple combats um on the you know not away from the narrative side there were there were some mechanical bits of like exploiting something and i just remembered Baldur's Gate like casting fireballs off screen <laughs> there's like a very similar vibe to to some of the Baldur's Gate 3 combats yeah i think a little bit of the design the level design is a little bit Baldur's Gatey um and not all of it actually um, there's something that really is lost about not being able to go from like screen to screen, uh, mm-hmm. you know, being one continuous world there. There's something, I don't know, interesting going on there. But, uh, for example, right, we were talking about the hag, uh, a minute ago. Well, the hag has a layer underneath her kind of, uh, uh, hut and it's basically like a, a much smaller Irenicus's dungeon, right? So it's like this big long room or a big wide room and it's like five or six different stations and each of them just has like interesting things to interact with and think about. Even just thinking about the hag, like from the cottage to the lair, I can almost close my eyes and see it portrayed isometrically, like with the with the old style art. A hundred percent, yeah. It, and it would feel... Baldur's Gate to me yeah yes I agree yeah so th- I think there are some touches I think that they they have paid attention to what makes those games go and they have melded that with what they what they're doing already um I just don't know I don't know which will I I think the Larian mode obviously because Larians make it I think that that will win out in the end I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm saying because it has to right it's a three or more 3d-ish um uh, a lot more movement mechanics and things like that but uh yeah there's some Baldur's Gate kind of stuff yeah um slasher epic asked a question about the resting system mm-hmm. do you want to talk about this yeah so the question is how does it handle rest short long how do the abilities work how they line up and the, I think this is the operative question. Is there anything preventing you from just taking long rests all the time, like Baldur's Gate in 1 and 2? And do you need camping supplies like in Pillars Eternity? It is just like Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. You can long rest after every, after every single combat to make sure all of your abilities refresh. There is a system of short resting. You get one short rest between long rests, which resets some abilities, but not all. And uh, and it, it restores a, a little bit of hit points. Um, there is in the early access one area 
where you cannot long rest. Um, there's another area, like the whole temple. Uh, it seems like you shouldn't be able to long rest in there, but you can. Yeah, there's a and and uh, what he's referring to is that there's a temple that is overrun by goblins. <laughs> yeah, and they live there. Yeah, and you can just camp while you're yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I would say the resting is actually more permissive than in Baldur's Gate because sometimes you mm-hmm. would get the dialogue. Uh, there, there are enemies close by, and you wouldn't even see them. Right in Baldur's Gate three, you can see an enemy, but if you are not in combat and no one in your party is, you can rest. Mm-hmm. So, it's going to be awesome playing a barbarian and just doing rage every single fight. Uh, I, I will say, though, I guess the bummer about that is that uh, it's a pretty lengthy process to rest. Yeah, like you're going to see fades. at least two load screens because you, yeah. you don't immediately... There is no quick rest. Every time you rest, you are teleported to a pocket plane that is your campsite. Um, even if you're, like, deep in the Underdark. Yeah, and I uh, I wrote about this in my piece, but the camp the camping mechanic is very cool. I think yeah. it, it's solving a lot of problems. Uh, you know, so as we were saying, you know, this is kind of Act One, and Act Two seems as like it's going to be like the road to Baldur's Gate, mm-hmm. and there are people who want to who want to go with you to Baldur's Gate that you're kind of accompanying them, and after you complete like the part of their quest. Uh, that that takes place in act one they just kind of chill out in your camp and kind of wait for you to hit the next flag for their quest Mm -hmm. and that's rad i think that's really good yeah and it's also the place where all your party members hang out if you don't want them in your party like Mm -hmm. if you if you've got an extra person they're just Mm -hmm. hanging out i persecuted Um, one of mine persecuted yep on account of what protected ground uh vampirism Mm, that is immutable Mm -hmm. can't Mm -hmm. do anything about it even if you're a daywalker. Yeah. Um, uh, this is from Andy. He says, I'm still uh, early in Baldur's Gate 1, but one thing I've noticed is that obviously the game, uh, games like the freedom you have to describe action in tabletop. Um, but the save load c- cycle provides a different route to that creativity. The possible, possibility, space is, oh gosh, possibility space is still finite, but in that Tony Hawk way, you can quickly try the same scenario over and over again with minor to- with different minor choices and get different outcomes. Is this still in Baldur's Gate 3? How does that feel in a turn-based uh, engine? If not, how are they making failure not suck? Yeah, so this is really in dialogue with the question about, you know, what is what does failure look like? Like, missing a role. Mm-hmm. How, how does the game deal with it? And so this is one possible response of, well, one way the game is dealing with it is you can just save scum, mm-hmm. which is a loaded term, but you can just reload, right? Yeah, and that takes a lot of time to do. Sure. Uh, upgrade your computer, y'all. <laughs> if you want. I, I, I'm playing the thing on Ultra. Like, I'm, I'm good. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, the load times are still pretty rough. I mean, yeah. they're not infinitely long, but it is probably 20 seconds. It's enough to uh, read some tweets. Let's yeah. say that. It's a, um, yeah, it's enough to tab out. So no, I I think that this is kind of an interesting question in terms of it is it definitely. What would you say? I'm I'm thinking about first time playthrough, the hardest encounter in the game, in early access right now. How many total like combats? How many total times where you engage it and you are level appropriate? Like you have the tools mm-hmm. to 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 complete the challenge to meet yep. it, 
Yep. But uh, how many total attempts would you say this game would, would ask of you? I think the hardest, and this is why I would say at the beginning of the podcast uh, or the beginning of the show of like things I didn't pursue all the way to their end. Yeah. So I would say probably the hardest one if I had attempted to complete it would have been fighting the hag, which you yeah. can do. Um, and I, I gave it one or two shots and it was just so clearly a thing that would require a lot of strategy and a lot of time put into it. And I knew that like, this is the end of the quest and this is not going to have any bearing on my opinions on this game one way or the other. I just kind of let it go. Um, but as far as like ones I completed that I thought were truly difficult and took a lot of time, probably the gift Yonki fight. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can fight, uh, a group of, I think four or five gift Yonki. And they're basically, you know, we've talked about on Mages and Murder Dads a bunch of different times, uh, how much we both enjoy like the party fight, yes, which is like a, an, an, uh, an adventuring party, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with differentiated roles. It's not, you know, a bunch of goblins or whatever. Who you got all... the fighter, you got the mm-hmm. range, you got the ranger, you got the rogue, and you got mm-hmm. the mage, right? It, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, the Githyanki party is that. I think it's a... Um, I think it's some... all the things I just listed. <laughs> well, there's... There's two kind of fightery people mm-hmm. to it. But uh, one but goes invisible, and I don't know if that's because of rogue stuff or just like quaffing an invisibility potion. It's quaffing an invisibility potion mm-hmm. because they go invisible and they come back and they hit you with a two-handed sword. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they one-shot my characters. <laughs> um, and that, But that probably took me, that was the hardest one for me, and it probably took me 20 attempts. Um, that's a lot, yeah. Uh, and, so, and, well, part of the reason, I, you know, just, just to say that, part of the reason for that is that my party was not necessarily constructed in such a way as to optimally fight that party. Yeah. I will say rangers are just not that good <laughs> uh, at this level range of of D and D period. They need a they need a redesign on the ranger period. This is a little off topic because it's just the difference, especially when you, if you like build a fighter to do range stuff, mm-hmm. you get an you get like the action surge of being able to get another standard action. The ranger doesn't get that. No, you get, I get Hordebreaker. I get to shoot shoot people with a much worse arrow two times. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh mm. I think mm-hmm. that uh I think that if you are a if you're a ranger right now, the the having the animal companion is just objectively better. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate. Yeah, I was just kind of going for a I I mean I I tried to play this early access as, you know, what do I find interesting? What do I want to try to do? And, mm-hmm. you know, um, early level D and D playing ranged is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ranger gets some cool abilities, um, but those cool abilities just did not match up to this particular fight. So earlier when we were talking about kind of the Gygaxian nature of fighting, sometimes you just hit up against a party that's hard to fight. Yeah. And good luck, buddy. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer to this, it's like these kinds of games just require saving and reloading. I don't know what this game looks like, from a, perspe- a design perspective of, I want to design a game where it is feasible for someone to play the whole way through and only use save to like save their progress before they go, you know, they leave the game. Mm-hmm. But I still want tactical combat. That's just like, it is just, it, it is built in the same way Tony Hawk is built in. I don't know if that, I don't know if that directly interrogates the way it treats failure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing, I guess kind of the part of the question Andy is asking, too, is that 
in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, and this is something that you and I talked about while we were doing it, or yeah. while we were playing, is that in Baldur's Gate 2, I could probably attempt to fight 20 times in the amount of time it takes me to attempt to fight five times in Baldur's Gate 3. Yes. Um, because of real-time combat, all that kind of stuff. You know, um, often due just to the way that, that leveling works and the way the encounters work and the way that, that you know, of there not that being that many levels in D&D. So the, there are some levels where the difference between fourth and fifth level is impactful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, those things matter. Um, and uh, so some turns would just be cataclysmic turns uh, where I could do absolutely nothing when three enemies, you know, two ranged enemies hit one character and then a melee character finishes them off. And now I'm down one character against a party who are all one level higher than me. Um, and so I, I think there are some really, um, in the early access, there are some stacked encounters where you have to go in guns blazing full brain power to make sure that you do it optimally every turn otherwise you can it can really swing um yeah i I also don't feel like there's that much swinging that happens uh the other way there are very few times where i felt like oh yeah after this turn this combat is over you know i there will be no more danger left in it and i think some people enjoy that the idea that you're kind of always on the edge of your capability but for me sustaining that over hours and hours and hours in the short time span that i played it in order to do the review um that didn't feel great just to be to be frank yeah um this is from moose how impactful is fifth edition's background system to gameplay in ways that are not dialogue options you get two skill proficiencies (laughs) Yeah, I, I didn't see it coming up too often, to be frank. Um, even in dialogue, it's pretty infrequent, mm-hmm. but uh, Sailor is the only one that gets you a perception uh, proficiency out of all of the backgrounds. <laughs> so if you don't have a class proficiency in perception, better be a Sailor, because that yeah. is, as, as was discussed, the single most important <laughs> skill check. Um yeah, I um, I was the folk hero background, and mm-hmm. that never came up, mm-hmm. <laughs> like not even once. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but 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 I will say, um, I really like uh, what's the warlock's name? Mm, the favored blade. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I have no idea. I don't remember any of the of mm-hmm. the side characters' names, but. Anyway, the warlock, he is a folk hero, and it's really cool to hear them spin that into a narrative for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he has some of the best writing in the game, personally. Yeah. Um, speaking of writing, the next series of questions are about narrative. This is from Hypo. Uh, does it feel like 3 is just retreading old ground for the franchise and, and quote, D&D-ass stories in general, or is it trying to tell a new story in the same setting that can stand on its own? I think it's a little bit different from the question from earlier, because, uh, and I think it's a good one, I mean, I want to reduce it down here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is is what's going on here to you more than a, quote, D&D-ass story? Let me give you, I think the the least charitable, or I don't know, it depends on how charitable you think D&D-ass is, but um, <laughs> it sounds pretty derogatory the way we're talking about it. <laughs> um, I think that, look, you have a character who um, is is thrust into a group of party members who all have the same problem that was set up by the DM before the campaign ever began. 
Yeah. Right? Um, you have literally a waking up on the beach scene, right? Mm-hmm. And, and meeting, <laughs> meeting, meeting your party members also like more or less on that beach. Um, you've you've got it's it's pretty D and ds let's face it i I think the the analysis you had earlier of somebody read sunless citadel and was like hell yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. it sounds it's it's it sounds uh i don't think that this is treading new ground narratively no um i i think it is 100 percent. i think it is a great tonal match for D &D, fifth Mm -hmm. edition I think it feels very similar to the writing and published adventures for D&D 5th edition. I think it's actually maybe a little bit more conservative than some of those. And I don't mean conservative in content, but just in the number of pathways they offer, the number of different strategies for doing things. Um, uh, You know, because what I think is cool about some of the adventures is that they give you, for example, running encounters. Curse of Strahd is a big one of those, right? Where you can encounter Strahd in different situations. The most recent one, um, I don't have it right here beside me. I'm blinking on the title for it, but it has you encountering this uh, kind of snow creature, this kind of snow shapeshifter mm-hmm. um, repeatedly over the course of the adventure. Currently, and obviously we only have Act 1, but Act 1 feels like five or, well, maybe four different story beats that are just kind of spread across the map that have a little bit of cross-pollination but feel very much um of their own thing right yeah and so we so but that allows the act one to stand on its own but i also don't really know other than one or two of these how they might kick forward into the adventure too i imagine that the um the devil that we talk about Mm -hmm. in you know a couple episodes ago Mm -hmm. um that, that was heavily featured in in the trailer or whatnot or the gameplay footage he's gonna mean mug you he's gonna show up and pull a saravok on you right or a strahd on you mm-hmm. it's gonna be very D ass yeah that's probably true <laughs> yeah um maybe that hag will show back up maybe if you don't kill her mm-hmm. um but but yeah it's uh, to answer the question it's par for the course. I have not been surprised by any narrative or conceptual stuff that has showed up yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Sergio was asking a similar question about how's the writing. I feel like we have answered that. Um, how does the tone compare to predecessors? So uh, even Divinity Original Sin, 1 and 2, Baldur's Gate, other 5th edition stuff. Yeah, so when we talk about tone... That's a lot. Uh, in terms of... So one thing I think of in terms of tone is like how how serious, how grim dark is kind of the world. So it's like mm-hmm. kind of like on a whimsical to Warhammer spectrum, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. From a uh, Terry Pratchett to a uh, Warhammer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think to its credit, there's still quite a bit of whimsy in this game that is punctuated with with like moments that that relatively on a relatively well uh sell themselves as serious i think that the the default assumptions as you're moving through the world is is a little bit more on the side of whimsy a little bit more on the side of silly mm-hmm. um 
there is a gnome that you can launch into the stratosphere uh, by pulling a lever. I don't know if you did that. I did it accidentally first. <laughs> I did not. But yeah. he's the one that uh, you could see in the content over the, uh, or the uh, kind of showed off stuff over the summer. Yeah. Going on the windmill. Well, that's um, And, uh, but I think that the game does relatively well. Like there's, there's also, you know, several moments where, um, you know, torture is on the table. There are several moments where, uh, mm-hmm. although even the torture gets a little silly. I didn't torture anybody. No, <laughs> but the, the torturer taught you something. Yes. Uh, yeah, there is a, uh, what is he a worshiper of Talos? Maybe? No, not Talos. Oh, different uh, guy. Not Bashaba. Not Bashaba. Someone else. Yeah. I have it written down, but not in front of me. Anyway, the the god of of uh, not Ilmater either, but uh, like the evil Ilmater, the, yeah. the flagellation, but bad. Yeah, and and he's like uh, all sexed up. <laughs> he's like a sexy torturer. Yeah, and he uh, will um, uh, beat you, and you can per- choose to perform uh, your flagellation, and if you do it a correctly it is what in dnd we would call a skill challenge and uh if you complete it then you get something but i was only able i wasn't able to convince him that uh, i was actually in pain so but mm. yeah this is someone who is torturing someone by like cutting them in the next room and it becomes like this goofy little comedy moment of skill challenge uh, i think so that sums up Baldur's gate overall right <laughs> yes kind of Right, because Baldur's Gate opens with a serious economic crisis, right? Yeah. Like, the game is selling us, this is a serious economic crisis dealing with iron, dealing with mine rights, dealing with a political crisis in the city and the town council. Um, but also there's, uh, Goober keeps, <laughs> keeps following you around, right? <laughs> like the Baldur's Gate holds all of these things simultaneously yeah. and that just is what it is. It doesn't even matter whether it's doing it well, it's just doing it. That's just what it is. Yeah. And there are some tone, the only, the only time that like tone kind of showed up for me was like that. Um, uh, the, the, the torturing guy was one of those. The other one was when Volo shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly how I did not want it to happen, just to be frank with you. Yeah. Um, Volo in the D&D books is a little bit like a raconteur, right? But sure. he's he's more, he's a scoundrel, right? Like, yeah. he is And a bon around. vivant. Exactly. He's like going around, he's drinking on everyone else's dime, he's writing these guidebooks, telling you a bunch of horse shit, and it's just lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like giving away everybody's secrets, and Elminster gets pissed off about it, right? That's like yeah. the deal. Um, Volo in this is just like a complete goofus. He's he is one step away from Nuber. He's like, hey, yeah. he's like, I'm I'm learning about goblins over here. I'm here. I am. That's not his voice, but he's like, I'm gonna sing for them because they'll kill me if they don't. And he like goes and joins your camp. Uh, I didn't care for that. I was very disappointed in Volo. However, after I helped Volo get out of the goblin camp where he'd been captured, I met a goblin sage. Who was reading Volo's books? Yes, yes, and, in the tower, and that dude is rad because mm-hmm. he was like, "Yeah, I've been reading these books. It's kind of interesting. He's saying all this stuff," and I was like, "Well, can I read it?" it you know, and like one of my options uh, was like, "Well, that's kind of surprising to see a goblin reading," and he gets real pissed off about that, justifiably. I uh, I convinced him to give me the book because I was like, "You need to fucking devote your life to worshiping the absolute." You need to give me those books. <laughs> They're distracting you from your piety. I didn't have that option. 
um but but yeah so that's all to say much like all the other it is very on par for mm-hmm. Baldur's Gate because there's some high notes and there's some not high notes uh yeah. there is not one unified tone i would say throughout the whole thing mm-hmm. um here's some questions that you have categorized as design slash miscellaneous this is from mm-hmm. media, medium dragon um i'm interested in some discussion of the way they uh depict bodies in in the uh, game i.e only conventionally attractive or the weird what do you desire half of character creation uh, do we think the level of fidelity in character models or the way the camera centers them change the way you relate to the characters uh, as opposed to the unchanging third person perspective of BG1 and 2? So definitely three things here. Yep. So one is you can't, uh, which I, I don't know how final this character creation is. Right now we don't even have like a fallout for facial like adjustments. There's just like preset faces right now. So... They may implement more, you know, body diversity in this game. But right now, there's one character model for for each uh, combination of, of race and gender. And that is just, like, what you're stuck with. So if that, is, if that continues to be the case, I think that will be very disappointing. Um, so so that's the, the other thing I would say, I guess, alongside that kind of first part of the question is, and this is what I was going to talk about with the companions is um everyone's too sexy Mm. i think the game's too horny Mm -hmm. and i know that's controversial about Baldur's gate and these types of games dang you agree with me uh oh is that true (laughs) well remember remember i I tweeted you was like i don't remember Baldur's gate one being this horny (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true and maybe i'm overstating i don't know if it's too horny but um I get the sense, and I understand why this is the case, and I guess I can talk about that trajectory in a second, but um, everyone is meant to be uh, visually a possible object of desire. And that means that all of the women are traditionally hot and all the dudes are traditionally hot. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I I saw someone talking about the Druid Lord, uh, maybe on Twitter, as like the himbo Druid. Oh my Um, God. Right, because he's just like this buff, strong. Like everyone's just hot in the thing, mm-hmm. and that's a bummer. Like I don't, I don't necessarily like that, and I don't interact with uh, Baldur's Gate, the Baldur's Gate games, in the way that other people I have seen interact with games like Dragon Age Inquisition, right? Mm-hmm. As like a dating sim, partial kind of thing, or or even Mass Effect. I just don't. I that's not why I play these games. I don't really get that much out of that portion of the game. Um, I find those interesting when they happen as part of gameplay. That's maybe why I like um, uh, that when we were talking right about romances in Baldur's Gate 2, kind of the way that I like those is that they're they're incidental, right? Like the like Vaconia or whatever is not a um, uh, cinematically centered object of desire in the game, right? She's just someone you're on adventures with who, if mm-hmm. you were nice to or actually kind of mean to, depending on. Yeah, uh, that comes up. And we've had the conversation on the show before about accidentally being nice to people and romancing them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think may, hopefully this game is going a little bit beyond that. But I just don't approach these games in that way. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'm not mad that like this game is including those players. I think that's great, I guess, if that's what you want to do. But but it comes at the cost of like aesthetic diversity. Oh, a hundred percent. There's what no the look like or people. There's no like. room for a Czar and Montaran in this yeah. kind of game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who are like you know, 
mischievous uh, Zentrum. All the Zentrum are hot too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where they show up, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I should be able to make like a not traditionally attractive character. Um, and again, right, this is something that, uh, you know, the academic Todd Harper is talking about fairly regularly uh, when it comes to uh, dating sims and when it, talks to, it comes to character creators, you know, so shout out to Todd. Um, but uh, when we even say things like traditionally attractive, right, that's excluding a huge number of people in the world and their bodies and their ways of experiencing the world. And so, um, yeah, I just feel like this is like almost a like Barbie doll kind of aesthetic universe um, where like everyone is perfect looking. And uh, that's a bummer to me. I would like mm -hmm. more aesthetic options in the world of people to look at. No, I want to make a Balthazar with tiny arms, but like huge tree trunk quads. <laughs> he's ready to roll all the time yeah yeah um yeah you know i just i don't know I, I and i imagine that stuff is coming i i have to think that that stuff within their animation capacity will show up but mm -hmm. um it is interesting to me interesting to me how much of this uh, the conversation that i've seen about this game has been dominated by people talking about like their uh, desire for characters um mm -hmm. which is just not how i interact with the game again i don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily um, but, uh, second part of this question was, or third, mm -hmm. maybe, uh, whatever part was the, there, the, the second part of character creation. I have with no the, idea what's up with that. Do you? So I do. I, I have played enough to, to see it. There is oh, where does a, it show up? Um, you have to make certain decisions that I think most players on their first playthrough will like, look at those decisions and be like, that's a bad idea. Hmm. And if you make enough of them, you start having dreams. And oh. in your dreams, the object of your desire, this kind of platonic ideal of the person you want to fuck, shows up. <laughs> and you immediately... That is what it is. Yeah, you, you immediately recognize it as that. Okay. Uh, and I think that uh, it's also implied that your fellow party members have a similar experience in their own dreams with their own independent uh, objects of desires. Yeah, and if people don't know what we're talking about, uh, basically during character creation, you create your character and then it skips over to like a second character creator and you are just kind of crafting another creature um, that is your desire. Um, and there's no explanation with, of that at the time. Yeah, it, it just says, what do you desire and... You aren't creating a character because it's, it's just not like a like doll maker. Basically. Yeah, it's a doll maker. There's no abilities associated with it. There's no background. It's just the aesthetic options, which which entails, okay, well, you there's an object of your desire. Is it a dwarf? Is it a drow? It's it's I can I a hundred percent understand why people looked at that. And there's definitely a little bit of undercurrent of like, ugh, mm -hmm. iffiness. Yeah, it's weird. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's bizarre. And, uh, you know, this, this is worth saying too, right? Only two gender options, right? Male and female yeah. for character creation. Same with the other one. Um, so if you have an object of desire that is not uh, normatively fitting into some very delimited categories, um, you know, this is not... Um, helping you in any kind of way or affording you the kind of experience you would want, which is also <laughs> a problem, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, and third third part of this question here is um, 
does the way the camera, so in conversations, right? Uh, historically yeah. in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, it just brings up a dialogue box and you kind of see that over the top of isometric stuff. In this game, uh, there's a cinematic camera that kind of cuts to, um, you know, three quarter uh, pictures of people. Mm-hmm. It is, you played a dwarf, so you experienced this too. I played a halfling. And so it is pretty amazing that the camera does not move based on where you are. And so everyone in the entire game who I was talking to were just looking down out of the screen and not looking at the camera <laughs> uh, because they were looking down to like match, match my eye line. Uh, and I was looking up and I would say half of my uh, conversations, which mm-hmm. I thought was an interesting touch, but um, it definitely does affect it. So you're included in this is that your player character will sometimes react. There will be an animation mm-hmm. of reaction to things yeah. that that uh, your interlocutor will say. Um, so a lot more is implied uh, in that. So it definitely reads that. But no, I think that, I think that there, there's definitely going to be a different relationship that I have to the Balthazar of BG3 um, and him navigating the story and my interpretation of how he's navigating the story in in this game versus versus BG one and two where it was purely text and I could I could kind of project whatever kind of you know micro expressions onto onto Balthazar that I want in this game I'm probably not going to have that ability to do that. No, you're going to make wild cartoonish faces uh, <laughs> because your protagonist does not speak in this game and yeah. so they they emote like a Charlie Chaplin film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is good, actually. Like, I think that actually really does work. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciated it. Like, anytime they're surprised, they're like, wow. Yeah, um, I will say that there are games like Fallout 4 where you have this fine granular control over your facial expressions that never matters. <laughs> the only way you ever even see your face is you have to, like, n- manipulate the camera to look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, this game, you'd better spend some time getting your face exactly the way you want it. Cause you're going to be looking at it a lot. Yes. Uh, every conversation is like shot, reverse shot. There's yes. not, that's the only thing they got going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I did get to put in the polygon article. I did get to put a, uh, picture of my, uh, my character, Randy Banjo, uh, like considering something. There's a lot <laughs> of like doing mind, mind tricks and shit in this game. <laughs> Because you're, because you, you know, you have the tadpole in your head, and you're uh, got some latent psychic abilities. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, overall, I think it's good. I think it also gives a lot more. This is very obvious, but it gives a lot more texture to the characters you're talking to. So even like the goofiest little goblin who I'm talking to is actually kind of a more full character than it would be in, say, Siege of Dragon Spear when I was talking to. Uh, more enemy characters than I would have in other Baldur's Gate stuff. You mm-hmm. know, I can imagine the the Sahuaguin, I can, still can't say it, but, sure. uh, you know, the uh, lizard folk city or the fish folk mm-hmm. city uh, in Baldur's Gate 2, that would be way different in this, in this thing. And, um, you know, getting to talk to the goblins or getting to talk to the, uh, gosh, what are the fungal people called? Myconids. The Myconids. There's Myconids in uh, in Act One here. Getting to talk to them is a different kind of vibe than it would have been in the other games due to the kind of camera work. So, let me tell you, it is fun talking to uh, Kuotoa in Baldur's Gate Three. Yeah, I didn't talk to the Kuotoa. Yeah, they? they're they're the hidden little area I was referring to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And down in the Underdark on with their lake, having a fun old time. What are they doing? They're worshiping. 
ball, or at least they think they are. Ball. <laughs> ball. Uh, all right. Uh, so this is from Evan. What do you think of the fashion? Um, and, uh, and then says, uh, additionally, I guess that could be blown out to the visual design in general, like how the Nautiloid looks, the Mind Flayer ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to know about those puffy sleeves. Yeah, it's actually interesting because the puffy sleeves are on a piece of armor that appears to just be unique to Asterion. I have not found that anywhere else. It's mm. just it's basically like custom armor just for Asterion. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly with... Uh, in terms of like what the other characters come with, they all come with like some visual flair. But in terms of like what your character is afforded, if, you know, that you scrounge around in the in the game mm-hmm. from vendors and dropping uh a little less interesting visually i think that's my personal opinion yeah not a lot of armor i imagine once we get to Baldur's gate there might be more clothes and shirts and things like that but i would yeah. say that this game is not really interested in like fashion souls as it were yeah <laughs> a lot of people are complaining about it because a lot of people are experiencing this, this game multiplayer which neither of us have done no i and to uh, be frank i have no interest in it other than yeah. like as a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we should probably give it a shot at mm-hmm. some point, but I'm yeah. not super interested in, in that experience. But one complaint is, yeah, we make a party of four people. Everybody everybody looks the same. Well, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the visual design is fine. I think it's a little bit flat, um, but I think that's also a problem of just the Forgotten Realms, right? This is taking place in the Forgotten Realms. This is something I said in one of the earlier episodes that we did during the Baldur's Gate preview stuff when I was talking or we were both talking about accents. Mm-hmm. Um, I, You know, there's this like middle European um, normative thing going on here where it's like everything is just generic sounding fantasy and everything kind of just looks like generic fantasy which is kind of why the nautiloid is cool it doesn't look or feel like anything else but like you go in the uh you know the temple that the goblins are occupying and that it looks like a temple from all other fantasy media uh you know you you go to the druid's grove and it's cool like it looks neat but there's nothing that i would say makes it stand out as like oh shit this is baldur's gate um it's just like yeah here's what you know if you asked me to draw some druid shit i would i would draw some circles and perhaps some stones yeah Um, no i think that uh it is definitely not expanding the horizons of what i think a abandoned temple you know uh druid circle would look like it is reinforcing and drawing upon the things i already know uh, in order to portray those things. It is literally moving in the opposite direction. It's going yep. from the stereotypes I have to the design and not at all pushing against any preconceived notions I have of what those things could be. 100%. And mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, uh, the, I think the best way to read that or the most positive way to read that would be to say, this is kind of what D&D does. Yeah. To be fair to D&D, um, or, or not, uh, to be fair to the game in relationship mm-hmm. to D&D, right? It saves basically anything that is aesthetically interesting for level 10 plus. Yeah. All right. So you can do planar shit, other nautiloid things, uh, going back to uh, the nine hells, all that kind of stuff. So um, I think there's a high, that's the benefit, the cool thing about D&D. There's a really high ceiling for weird shit in it. Um, Mm -hmm. But we aren't seeing any of that yet. Yeah. I wouldn't say. Um, This is from Ceramic Sun. I want to know how racist it is. Notice this this question was, is it racist? 
Yeah, the, no, this is not a binary, is it racist, yes or no, it is, I want to know how racist it is. Mm-hmm. I would say it is exactly as racist as D&D in yeah. its assumptions, the way it goes about things, the way it thinks about race, the way it thinks about um, species, things like that. I I do get the sense that they have, that the developers of this game have read some of the criticism and are aware of D&D racial hierarchy criticism. We know also, for example, that Wizards of the Coast itself is very aware of this, this stuff, which is why the new uh, D&D kind of uh, big rules altering book, I, I forget what it's called, but kind of the follow-up to Xanthar's Guide to Everything or, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the other... It's got another uh, proper noun individual yeah. guide to everything or something like that. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's not an adventure. It is a book of rules stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a woman's name. Anyway, uh, uh, it has new rules for dealing with race in D&D, um, right? That obviously doesn't change the basic assumptions there, and it mm-hmm. also doesn't change that the player's handbook doesn't have those in it. Sure. Um, but uh, they're they are aware of that, and I think that that hopefully, whenever D and D releases a new edition or does a complete overhaul, those things will change. I get the sense that the developers at Larian are at least aware of that conversation, and the reason I say that is that there is very little. There are many places in this game for there to be a racial um, antagonism. And in previous games, there would have been racial antagonism. And I mean that in the sense of like, well, they're a goblin, so you know they're liars. You know, whatever. Things like that. There's really not a lot of that here. And it actually feels uh, weirdly absent because all the other assumptions are there, but they just don't do the thing that they would normally do in D&D. Did you feel that way, not feel that way? Mm, Let me me say this. The last character I played uh, was a solo character who was Drow. Mm Mm-hmm. This uh, this certainly impacted it, it. Being a drow is really different going through this this game. Are I they simulating say. like the Drizzt Doerden kind of like no no, no one because, trusts you for who you are? Well, there's two variants of drow. Oh, um, okay, yeah, I didn't look super closely at it. Yeah, so you can choose a. It's very strange. It's almost like the, it's like in the same like area on the character creation is like sub race mm-hmm. i.e. for elf wood elf half you know wood elf uh, shield high dwarf elf. hell dwarf yeah yep and there's like loth sworn and celadrine sworn oh and loth and like you can only have by default you can on any character creation option you can like check a box to unlock all the colors right so like if you want to be a dwarf there's like the default skin textures mm-hmm. And you could click a, click a box and then be neon green if you want, right? Mm-hmm. Well, on the Lost Sworn eyes for Drow, only the Lost Sworn can have red eyes. And it's, it's exclusively shades of red. There's mm-hmm. something very interesting going on with the lore. Like, apparently there is a there is some kind of struggle among the Drow over, like, the, you know, the, 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 the destiny of, 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 of that... Uh, of of drow as a whole yeah i didn't read any of the later books on that yeah so i don't really know so i don't know but there are several situations where in when i played earlier i would go up and like interact with people like the people who um capture lazelle you gotta like Mm -hmm. convince them to run away you just roll up to them and they run away as a drow um there and you know they, they definitely uh 
they're interacting with you in the town. I think that they, you you kind of like before you gain access to the first town, you kind of quote unquote save them. You you take part in a battle out front mm-hmm. and they give you the benefit of the doubt, but they'll still make like comments about you being a drow. And you also just solely by being a drow, you have access to like um, to uh, to certain um, dialogue options that may have a tag either drow your race or it might have a tag like underdark because that's where you're from mm. mm-hmm. yeah so i i'm so i mean i guess um just as racist as D D is probably yeah, with no. all of the same unexamined assumptions then absolutely um yeah that's where it is mm-hmm uh, Slasher Epic says, this is more speculative, but did you imagine the game will, do you imagine the game will get mod support and map tools to the same degree Neverwinter Nights did? Do you think that'll impact the community? I don't know. I don't even um, know, I don't know what modding looks like for Original Sin 2. I imagine that this will have the exact same modding capability as Original Sin 2. I would need to look into that. I seriously doubt Original Sin 2 has the mod community Neverwinter Night did because Neverwinter Nights, like, they released developer tools. Mm-hmm. Like with the game, basically, you could create your own custom because like the the big push with Neverwinter Nights is that you could like you could basically play DM in that game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So big question. I think that this game is going to get ten thousand times hornier if they open up uh, mod support. Mm-hmm. Skyrim makes make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, we've got a, a what appears to be a list of miscellaneous jokes that people have made. Um, mm-hmm. Jordo says, how many wives are in the game so far? And are there plans to add more later? And I'm assuming that Jordo means romanceable characters. Mm-hmm. I think there are five. Is that true? Sure. I haven't romanced anybody. I although haven't. I do th- I do think that there was one dialogue option where I could have propositioned somebody. But that was not the character I was playing. I uh, Well, so like, like, let's run down the uh, companions real quick because we haven't really talked sure. about it. But, but In order that you meet them. Mm-hmm. First, Lazel from the introduction. Uh, you're separated, but you can reunite. Githyanki, fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, Shadowheart is the second one? Shadowheart is the second. So Lazel, uh, cold-hearted... Uh, evil person mm-hmm. murder. talks about how murder is good calls the weak right yep Shadowheart evil cleric mm-hmm. also very like uh, Adam's family evil like you'll be in a dungeon that's like dark and dreary and she'll be like oh I really like this mm-hmm. it's a really dumb version of evil it actually makes me angry that sometimes like evil characters in these games are, are, are literally like the Adam's family like ooh this torture chair is so comfortable <laughs> and she's a she's a uh, cleric of Char, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, probably meeting Gale next, depending. You can easily miss Gale, though. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know that you could recruit people and send them directly to camp. So I met him and I was like, well, I'll see you later. Party's full. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Yeah. Um, Gale, uh, kind of a little bit of a goody two shoes wizard, but with a magical item, a desire for magical items in order to consume them. He's got some kind of problem there. Oh, mm-hmm. um, and finally, oh my gosh, the name of this character is the one, uh, uh not Ezreal, but Asterian. Asterian. Yeah, I have a heart. I always want to say Astaroth, but that's from Soul Calibur. Yeah, how would you describe Asterian? Uh, Asterian is a vampire thief, and he's like a real, um, uh, he's a lot to manage. 
You got to yeah. really manage him. And I immediately was not into that. And uh, I banished him from my camp for being a vampire. Uh, I found mm-hmm. he'd been going out and killing animals. And I found some of those while walking around. And then I woke up one night at camp and he was leaning over me trying to drink my blood. Mm. And I was like, Asterian, what are you doing? And he was like, well, I just need a little bit of blood. I'll feel so much better if I have some blood. And I was like, get the hell out of here, dude. Um, Weirdly enough, he didn't leave then. I found a bounty hunter later who was hunting for him. And I was just yep. like, yeah, I know where that guy is. He's at my camp. Send it, uh, get him out of here. It's really interesting because uh, before... It's pretty obvious Asterian's a vampire. Uh, he literally takes damage from moving water. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. Takes damage from, from moving water. But after, if, if he is outed as a vampire, he then gains a once per encounter, like, vampiric bite ability. That's really good. Like, drains health. Hmm. Like changes him, and then the final person whose name we had forgotten, and I totally understand why, is Will with a Y and no uh, I. Yeah, that's right. He's the best mm-hmm. one. He's cool. Will, yeah, human warlock, um, folk hero, uh, interesting. Kind of the 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 nature of his pact is a secret. No, I, I, I no, like it how that I learned it. Mm, oh no, it's a secret at the beginning. Initially. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you but have to, like, I do like talk it. Talk to him quite a bit to get it out. I do like it that, like, as a player in Dungeons and Dragons, I know that all warlocks have a pact. Yeah, right. That is the, the what separates them from wizards and sorcerers. So I know that. As individuals in Faerun, you meet Will. I guess you know he's a warlock, right? I don't know where. Maybe maybe you don't know he's a warlock. Maybe I only know that because I can look at his character sheet, right? Mm-hmm. But we're just like, okay, you do magic, sure. But you would think that if it was ever said, oh, you're a warlock, everybody would know. Oh man, well, what's your pact? Who 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 are we? Who are we signing up with here? Yeah, uh, yeah. His story is super cool. Uh, so he has one eye, or mm-hmm. he, he has a a, a um, like an artificial eye, yeah, one socket, and basically he was left for dead. Uh, after uh, did some drow leave him? Some kind of yeah. uh, some kind of problem. I think I think it was drow who left him. But uh, he uh, yeah anyway he was left for dead and uh, you know lost his eye and he met this woman who like helped him learn all these powers and do all kinds of stuff and eventually she was like yeah I'm a demon <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, if you make a pact with me I'll give you even more power and you can go get revenge. And so she replaced his eye with like a magical eyeball that like she can also use sometimes. Um, Mm. So yeah, he's really cool. I think he's got a great story. I think the other characters probably have really cool stories. I like Lazelle. I made enough decisions where Lazelle like kept coming on to me. Um, And I don't know what I was doing to make that happen, but Mm. uh, you know, somehow that was occurring. Shadow has got a cool, she's got some sort of weird, mysterious magic going on that, that, uh, she keeps trying to keep hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, Asterian is not in my camp, uh, is gone, probably doing something <laughs> evil somewhere. I don't care for him, but mm-hmm. I, I like the companions so far. I, I think they're cool. I'm interested to know more about them, um, but I and but I don't know if there are going to be more or not. Yeah, I I mean, I think that there will be more. And I think the big question for me is whether or not we will 
be able to meet some companions that are not... All of these companions also have the tadpole in their head. Yeah. And they all have, like, these fleshed-out stories. I would really like just to have some companions in Baldur's Gate that are like, hey, I'm a good fighter if you need that for your party, you know? Yeah. I would like recruitable, (laughs) just functionally character-created dudes. Yeah. I think that would be useful. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, next question. This is from Brian Taylor, who did the uh, song you heard at the beginning of this episode. Ooh. Um, uh, uh, Brian asks, why is that one lady green? Githyanki. She's Githyanki. They're green. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, well, you know what time it is? Ooh, what time is it? It's time for the Elminster Minute. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Sergio asks, have you seen Illminster? Um, and, well, you know, Danny, maybe you remember who Illminster is. Illminster mm-hmm. is a wizard. Um, he has traveled all over Faerun. Of course, this game takes place in Faerun, like the other Baldur's Gate games. Uh, he was young once. He is now old. Uh, he used to travel from the Forgotten Realms into the physical world to meet with uh, the creator of the Forgotten Realms, or the interpreter of the Forgotten Realms, Ed Greenwood. He showed up in the other Baldur's Gate games in various capacities in order to kind of uh, be an old hooligan and tell us stuff. And so the big question, obviously, is, is Elminster in Baldur's Gate 3? You would expect him to be. We've already gotten Volo. They they always have this kind of relationship. Um, and that's all to say, I'm here to tell you that Elminster has not yet appeared in Baldur's Gate 3. I have read correspondence. This is from uh, Mary. How do the guns feel? Mm. There are large artillery uh, batteries on the Nautiloid ship Mm. that are blown up by a dragon. But you don't uh, get to touch them. There are other artillery batteries you get to go up to, but you can't actually interact with them. So, to be determined. One star. Mm-hmm. Ainda says, that vampire guy seems like he needs to chill out around people he just met like a day ago. Can you tell him to chill out? I did tell him to chill out. You can definitely tell the vampire guy to chill out. I think I, I almost want to, on my current playthrough, just like when he's sucking my blood, instead of doing the thing I did the first time, which is like, no, you can't. Just be like, okay. Yeah, we're cool. Yeah, we're cool, sure. We're cool with steering. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, well, that's it. That's all the questions we got. Is there anything we didn't get to that you wanted to say about Baldur's Gate 3? No, I think that uh, I really like just going through the questions because there were several topics that I wanted to really get into and the questions afforded us the opportunity to talk about the things I thought were important. And I also didn't want to like get too deep into any of the specifics because we're probably going to be talking about it. Like I'm sure there are going to be tweaks uh, in, in you know the final release, but I am pretty confident that I have experienced Act 1 of Baldur's Gate 3, like more or less as it's going to exist. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so, you know, as we've said before, we will play this whenever it comes out in full release. You know, if they trickle out some more of it or if basically if they do a major update where there's like another act, I might play that. But Mm -hmm. I, I don't have plans to like, like you were saying before, if they release some more classes or something, I'm not replaying this. This Yeah, Um, no. And even if it's another act, I feel like I know what this game is. Yeah. I feel like I might just wait till it's out. 
Yeah. Well, we'll play it by ear. You might, you might hear from us again about it. You might not. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, I think we have committed to playing um, uh, Disco Elysium. You're trying to figure out a schedule for that, how to make that work. Yeah. So those episodes will probably come out, start coming out, I would say, the end of November, something like that, yeah. very beginning of December. Um, that's probably only go- only going to be five or six episodes. It's probably going to be pretty quick. It but, will uh, It will go pretty quick, yeah. But that will be the next uh, Midges of Murder Dads game, and then we'll kind of play it by ear after that. As always, if you like this type of show, uh, if you're hankering for the Majors of Murder Dads feel and uh, you're not getting in your life, you can listen to me and Michael Lutz doing something basically the same with uh, the Fallout series. We've already done Fallout 1 and 2, and uh, we're working on Fallout 3 right now. That's too much future. That's also here on the YouTube or at youtube.com slash range touch. A lot this more gun one. feel in those in those games. So much, so much more gun feel and laser gun feel and um, <laughs> nuclear gun feel and all kinds of mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, if you like the show and you want to support it and you want to support all the other stuff we do at Range Touch, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch. The link is down in the description below this episode. Um, that helps us pay for hosting. Obviously, it doesn't matter for YouTube, but if you want to listen to it as a podcast, um, uh, it helps us do that and helps us make all the other stuff that we do as well. At $5 a month, you can get access to our monthly podcast that we do where we're just kind of shooting the shit, talking about it. Speaking of, we need to record that for yeah. <laughs> this, this coming uh um uh, month but um yeah it's all there it really helps us out um it allows us to do stuff and it allows us to do things like pay for that cover of a song from a coen brothers film that uh, (laughs) is uh based on Baldur's gate you know that kind of stuff that it's good to spend money on um Mm -hmm. uh, thanks again to brian taylor for putting that together um and uh thanks to all of you for listening to the show and being kind of intermittent listeners i'm actually hugely surprised i look at the stats for this you know, every now and again. And uh, we have um, new listeners, I'm not exaggerating, every single day. Uh, we have old listeners just who like fire this shit up at episode one when they need to do a road trip for some reason. Yeah. Uh, and so we appreciate that. Thanks so much for doing <laughs> Which is that. awesome. Great. Yeah. If it's your first time through, uh, if your first time hearing this, you know, make a little comment down there and say first time through, first time, long time. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, let us know, you know, if you're on your fifth listen and you're hearing this, uh, let us know. I'm curious about, uh, about that, but, uh, we want to say thanks and, uh, we'll be back in a month or so, give or take with, uh, Disco Elysium. Yeah. Ciao. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one second, please. Please, Mr. Saravah. Oh, I don't wanna please don't shoot me into Bonus Gate. Please don't shoot me into Bonus Gate. I swear when they call me Goriath's Horde. Magic missiles and a flaming sword. Gathering parties and adventures will go. Possessed by bandits and